Hi, I'm Rosie Acosta. I'm a meditation teacher, speaker, and author of You Are Radically Loved, a healing journey to self-love. Look, I grew up in East Los Angeles during the 92 LA riots, and it set me on a troubled path. I didn't grow up with mentors in my life, so I turned to reading as many books as I possibly could to learn about the purpose of life. In my journey, I found that having these conversations gave me life, and I decided I wanted to create a place where I could share these conversations with my community. So come have a sit with me as we learn about, well, everything. We have an exciting guest on the show today. Dr. Scott Lyons, who is a former drag queen and now a clinical holistic psychologist, an educator, and the author of the book Addicted to Drama, Healing Dependency on Crisis and Chaos in Yourself and Others, and also the host of the wonderful podcast called the Gently Used Human Podcast. Uh, Dr. Scott, how are you today? Thank you so much for being I'm here. Good. I didn't know my bio said I, um, I started with a former drag queen. That's that's, I knew about time. it because I was there, but I, <laughs> I don't know there. who in my team put that in the bio as the first thing. I was like, whoa, that's interesting. <laughs> it's very punchy. I like it. It is very punchy. I, I wish I was like the former drag queen of like one drag race or something big. Like we're talking like in my 20s paid through gra paid for grad school by being a drag queen <laughs> situation. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Okay, cool. Yeah. So what did that look like? Like, where where did not you do pretty. that? I was not pretty. I was not, just so we're clear. I was not interested in being pretty. I was interested in being funny mm -hmm. uh, and wearing very little clothes. Um, that sounds fun. Like that, that was, I always had a beard. Uh -huh. um, I, I shaved everything else uh, out of respect, I guess. Um, uh -huh. Where I used Nair. Do you remember Nair? Oh my gosh, yeah. Did that work for you? I could that did not work for me. I'm I'm pretty sure it gave me all sorts of diseases that I don't know yet yeah. about. <laughs> but did it make your hair fall out? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. Yeah. And, and other things. Sick. Yeah, and other, other things fell out. <laughs> other things fell out too. My dignity. Um <laughs> and uh <laughs> I was never great at makeup. I I'm, will be the first to admit I, I was functional at makeup. And but what I my skill sets were was um, I had legs for days because I was a dancer as well. And I could do anything in eight inch heels. Um, wow. I could do gymnastics do in eight inch heels. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh. It was. How does one, I mean, this must be a thing where practice makes perfect. Like, did you just walk around in eight inch heels all the time? And... I would go to my ballet classes sometimes in heels. Like I would mm -hmm. switch between high heel shoes and my point shoes. Okay. Um, and so like, it, like when you're used to being on your, the top of your toes, basically your big toe on this small yeah. little box, like an eight inch heel was much Nothing. more comfortable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so much more comfortable. Yeah. Okay, so now how how many years later? How are your feet? How are my feet? Um yeah. well I still do have a few stalkers who are obsessed with my feet and, and um that <laughs> talk about radically loved. <laughs> they radically love my feet. Whenever there's a, a photo uh on my website 
um, of me with like my shoes off and I'm like in a celebratory pose of some sort. And mm -hmm. I, I still get lots of emails being like, how much for the feet, you know? And, really? and to, yeah. And I just say, thank you so much. Um, I, I, you know, appreciate your um, excitement and they're not for sale. <laughs> how much for or rent feet? or whatever or borrow. Uh -huh, <laughs> they're mine. Uh -huh. Thank you. Fair. Um, but yeah, that's my feet are, my feet are, they're fine, actually. I, I, okay. I, you know, like I studied a lot of physical therapy and osteopathy in my life uh, to uh -huh. know how to sort of counteract the um, effects of high heels and point shoes. Oh, any tips, any high level tips you want to share? Oh, my God. I love that. That's that's what we're <laughs> navigating in the show. Um, um, by the way, we are going to talk about drama and trauma <laughs> and all those things. But I have not put on a high heel in. I want to say at least five years. Mm, mm. And my feet hurt still. Oh, yeah. I don't blame you. Um, I mean, I think there's like, you know, like things I learned of like low sodium diet, mm. like, uh, you know, roll out your calves, uh, roll yeah. out your feet. There's a, there's a lot of like toe dis um, exercises and feet exercises to rebalance the muscles that I did. I mean, it became a full-time job to maintain my feet health. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I can you know, at a certain point when I was nearing the end of grad school, I was like, I'm done. I'm good. Like my, yeah, I'm good. Um, but it, it, cause it, it takes almost as long, almost as many hours a week to get ready for drag as it does to take care of your feet and your back. Cause Post you know, show. Oof. Oof, post, yeah. show, post show post show stretches for sure yeah oh my yeah. gosh i can just imagine i mean yeah. oh all right well okay feet aside <laughs> <laughs> i've been looking forward to this conversation <laughs> for a while now oh i'm just gonna keep blushing this whole time i love um, it i so i've been having so much fun with the book and so okay. I've been using it kind of interactively. So oh. I've been like taking it with me and making my friends take the quiz. Okay. Yeah. How's <laughs> so, that going? It's really fun and also slightly confrontational. That might tell you something <laughs> about me. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, I, I would never enjoy some a, a sense of confrontation. I mean, right, no. my goodness. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you don't appreciate that at all. <laughs> when i first started reading it though yeah. uh or maybe this was a podcast i was listening to you talk about and then you do talk about it in the book how we're like so much more prone to be like yeah i so i know someone in my life who's addicted to drama we will yeah. all raise our hands right yeah and yeah, then yeah. when we're asked am i addicted to drama me myself it's like yeah i'm fine you know that other person is but not it, me a hundred percent a hundred percent Except, strangely enough, because uh, I have a quiz on my website, and it's the Am I Addicted to Drama quiz that is so popular on my website. But when actually, but there's an anonymous, you know, there's an anonymity to it. But yeah. when in a room full of people or even talking to someone where they see me or whomever else, they'll always say they won't raise their hand. 
yeah around being addicted to trauma what do you think i mean from a psychologist's perspective is it it's just just hard to look at ourselves in the mirror and see quote-unquote flaws yeah i mean it's not just it, it is that it but the nature of an addiction is that it veils you from seeing the social consequences of it you know, if you are in tune and empathetic and compassionate to the social consequences that are being created out of the dependency on something, you probably couldn't navigate that and all the other things it takes to maintain the addiction. So, and and there's a way in which addiction in and of itself represents a certain disassociation, a certain um, divorce or self-abandonment from yourself, usually as a means of preservation from trauma. But because of that being divorced from yourself, you're also not aware of your behaviors and connected uh, and witnessing your thought patterns to the degree that you would be if you were more at home in yourself. Hmm. So so the person who is more at home in themselves, do you think Mm -hmm. is the person who is more willing to to admit, okay, I might be a little bit addicted to drama here, or I might have a propensity towards the dramatic flair. Are you asking for a friend? Uh, yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> In fact, my friend was like, hey, can you ask this question when you talk to Dr. Scott? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thing because it's like the, the, it, it rep- like the more aware you are of a pattern, it does represent the more awareness you have within yourself. Now, that doesn't mean the pattern has changed. Awareness does not equal change. And that's important mm-hmm. to recognize. You can still be, you can be aware you're an asshole and still behave like an asshole. That's, that's reality. And yeah. are we allowed to swear on your podcast? Oh, yes, yes. Please go okay. ahead. <laughs> Feel free to bleep me out. If, uh, if <laughs> we always I mark the explicit box, it's okay. Good Good choice. Best choice. (laughs) More interesting choice. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Yeah, uh, you know, uh, yes, it represents an awareness, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're out of the pattern. Mm -hmm. Just because you're aware, like, oh, I might have some propensity. I might be a drama dabbler, so to speak. Um, and, and, And being addicted to drama is on a scale. So it's not like you are or you aren't. It's how much are you interrupting your own peace? How much are you in this process of exaggerating and intensifying and catastrophizing and adding unnecessary turmoil in your life? You know, and we yeah. all do it. It's just to the degree of how much. Like, I, I think it's so important to normalize the physiological process to which we are creating, revving our nervous system up, revving a stress response up unintentionally. How, how many of us have overscheduled ourselves? Well, guess who did the schedule? Yeah. You know, like how yeah. many of us have been in a peaceful environment, like a, walking through a garden or on a beach or in a forest and started thinking about an ex or started thinking about what you have to do when you get back to work the next day or um, any other story that you're running through your head when really you're surrounded by beauty and ease and peace. And yet there's something in you that reflexively won't 
lets you arrive into that sense of peace, that ease, that stillness. And that that is the physiology, the unconscious physiology that is at play in an addiction to drama. So how do we, okay, let's say we recognize we're a little bit of an asshole Mm -hmm. or maybe a lot. (laughs) Asking for a friend. "Mm -hmm." Yes. So so let's (laughs) continue talking about this friend as an example. Um, And it's like, you're 40 years old. So you've been doing this for a long time. It's deeply ingrained, um, you know, and you've made a life in the health and wellness industry and (laughs) It's like, I what feel are like you you're talking about me. Are you talking about me? <laughs> Not, no. I'm talking about my friend. Your friend, my anonymous yeah, no. friend. <laughs> so you're 40. You're in the health and wellness industry. Uh, this friend is, and yeah. Um, yeah. they're still enacting these ways of exaggerating, intensifying. Um, they're they're having challenges finding intimacy without mm-hmm. the intensity. Uh, they do better in relationships after fights than they do in the calm. Yeah. They, I mean, I could go on and on about like the symptoms that show you're like, yes, check, 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 check for my friend. <laughs> yes. For my friend. For my friend. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. yes, I'm an overscheduler. You know, yes, um, I could like take one part of my day and and globalize it to my entire experience of my day or my week or my life. Um, like I had gotten to a little issue with someone honking at me in the car and my day was awful. Like everyone yeah. just won't give me my space. Mm-hmm. Those type of actions and behaviors. Um, do you want to finish the question though? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me see if I can articulate this. Yeah, it's I kind because of, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and it's mm-hmm. it's been really interesting to notice myself retrospectively, retrospectively, typically. So, mm-hmm. like yesterday, I at one point I was sitting next to a friend, and I was like, "Everybody, just leave me alone," because I was getting text <laughs> messages from five different people, all wanted an answer from me about something or wanted me to do something, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't realize that I had done it like that until they reminded me today because I Mm -hmm. made them take this quiz and they were like, Oh, well remember yesterday when you threw up your hands, I think the word was theatrically (laughs) and you were like, everyone, uh, I just need a minute, uh, uh, you know, to myself where nobody's bothering me. And I, so I think the question is, uh, let's Mm -hmm. say I were this friend who (laughs) is in the health and wellness industry. And I realize that I'm being a bit of an asshole here yeah. But it feels like where, how is this warranted? It seems like there's this fine line between um, yeah. what is a warranted amount of mm-hmm. stress and drama and yep. what is over the top. And I think that's yep. what you're talking about when you say it exists on a spectrum and we all yeah. do it and we're human. Totally. I, it's a great question about like, what is a normalized response to stress and what is a disproportionate response? And it's not like it's the easiest answer, but I know that if I'm blowing a birthday candle out with a fire hose, that's not the most efficient use of my energy, time, and emotion. Yeah? It's because the question that we can start to ask is, could I have less attention, less energy, less emotional reactiveness 
and still adapt to the circumstances that are in front of me. Like if everyone's texting me at the same time and I go, assholes, like why won't you just leave me alone? Which is a fine response, you know? And then all of a sudden it's like, everyone just is constantly crowding me. And then I'm, I'm pulling logs onto that fire. I'm going like, and then I'm thinking about my parent who just never leaves me alone and is always on my back about something. And then I'm like, so I'm adding fire I'm adding fuel to a fire. And so it's going to be disproportionate to the actual stimulus because I'm pulling all of these other moments of time in and to rev myself up to a reaction that is less about the condition and more about getting a stimulus, a sensation, a experience that actually is thrilling energizing and pain relieving Mm. yeah so good the (laughs) other thing that i was (laughs) identifying with is um the the section it's early on in the book where you're talking about uh well you think you use a specific person for an example this idea that that intensity can morph into anger yeah. I think back to childhood and I, I feel like I'm very, very highly attuned to that kind of energy. And mm-hmm. even in my, mostly my rom- rom- romantic relationships will seek that kind of energy out mm-hmm. as a way of kind of playing out, um, I guess, like a childhood trauma. Yeah. Um, and so I think about the difference between trauma mm-hmm. and drama. And, drama. and it seems yeah. like a bit of a fine line. We chase the drama to avoid our trauma. Mm. So often trauma means we have to be in deep contact to ourselves to metabolize it. We have to be in the presence of experience, not like we have to throw ourselves into a lake, but we have to at least have a toe in the water in order to process it. Yeah. Mm. We can't move what we can't feel, but we can certainly dramatize what we don't feel until a point where we feel something that's bigger than the actual thing we're trying to avoid. Yeah. If I so, can't tolerate sadness, yeah. I'm going to create the conditions where I get angry. So the moment I feel kind of sad and lonely, I'm going to go to a grocery store, like in the story and feel like, and like find a certain situation where I feel like someone cuts me off in the parking lot or inside the store. And I'm going to get angry and that will override because it becomes what's called the secondary emotion. It overrides the actual core primary emotion. And I never have to address the core primary emotion, except that that's a form of repression suppression. I'm shoving it down where it becomes toxic in my system in order to avoid it with something more intense and something more available, sometimes more socially accepted. Like if loneliness is something that's not socially accepted, but anger is, I'm going to go to an expression that is more socially accepted. Or if I have, like, let's say that you have a box of crayons. We're all born with a box of crayons, and that's every crayon represents an emotion, right? Mm-hmm. And in my childhood, there's only three crayons that are modeled and accepted. Yeah? Anger, rage, despair, or something mm-hmm. like that. And sadness comes around, and I had nothing to color with. 
Yeah, I don't have, I'm not able to express that. So I go to what expressive tools I have in my crayon box, which is anger, rage, or despair. I'm like, oh, well, the anger one is an easy one that's been well used. I'm just going to start coloring on the page with that. And I never actually address the primary emotion. Hmm. But I have a big cathartic response with a moment of exhaustion at the end. And I feel like, oof, something moved. And I collapse at the end of that, which is not actually what happens at the end of a metabolizing of an emotion. We don't restore, with primary emotions, we restore the energy back to ourselves. With a secondary emotion, we run ourselves ragged until we collapse. Hmm. And there's a could you give me an difference. example of, yeah. Mm-hmm. oh, yeah, no, I could, yeah, that's for sure. It seems like a huge difference in the terms of energetics. I'm wondering yeah. if you could give a specific example, if you have one, of uh, tapping into that primary um, emotion mm-hmm. and it giving you energy back Yeah, from like yeah. a, what we might consider a negative emotion. Oh, yeah. A negative primary emotion. Well, I'm going to get on a soapbox for a moment and say there is when we think about positive and negative emotions it's not like good or bad mm-hmm. it's positive emotions mean that we no longer need more energy to maintain to change the scenario that's what it means positive emotions are like hey you're feeling good about or happy about this cool we don't need more energy it's a positive feedback a negative feedback loop means we have to interrupt the current condition and utilize more energy to try to adapt and change. That's what's mean that's what actually positive and negative means. It's not good or bad. It's just about how much energy is needed in terms of conservation or usage. So that's my little soapbox. Because what that sets up is things like, oh, we should always be happy, which just turns into toxic positivity. Or yeah. like anger and, you know, Anger is bad. Anger is is a fuel source for us to repair and uh, navigate our boundaries. Anger lets us know that some boundary work is needed. It lets us know something is in friction with our value system. So it's a system, emotion lets us know something, and it can be part of the fuel to make change in what's happening. So I just want to say that before... I fully answer your question, which I don't recall. Um, Can I give an example of a primary feeling moving and restoring energy? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And that was helpful. I find that context very helpful. So thank you. So um, I have a client who was never allowed to show anger. She was never allowed to show anger. That would be, in her words, unladylike. Yeah. And I remember she's an academic and I remember something happened in her university that was like very abusive. Yeah. And um she just kept going, she would say, Oh, I feel so sad and then would 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 process a little bit that way. But you could tell there was more there because she she couldn't let it go. And um and couldn't move forward with it. 
and wasn't able to adapt to the to the circumstances wasn't able to have feel recognize her choice in the matter or to see how to navigate it yeah. and so the anger was being said like pushed down which we know has this dramatic effect on the immune system yeah and we know that that's how you only have in your energy bank and i mean I mean actual energy, not some metaphysical energy. You have a hundred dollars. Yeah. Ten dollars goes to breathing, fourteen dollars goes to brain function, eight dollars goes to this. You when you're in a hype more hyper stressful situation, you need six extra dollars to release more energy to you know, mobilize uh, more muscles and adapt to something, etc. When you suppress, repress something like anger. That is money in your energy bank that is just sitting there frozen that you cannot use. That is the same with trauma. Mm. Yeah, because trauma is no, it, it is, it's frozen energy. It's frozen emotion in the body. And, um, and so let's, that anger, I mean, over time, if you're repressing, suppressing, you know, the traumatic experiences, emotions, most of your energy bank is going to maintain the freeze of that and you're not being a you're not able to utilize that to other homeostatic functions to run your basic operating system essentially and that's when disease starts to form and your body starts to break down so for this client we slowly entered into what it would be like and creating a safe space for anger. I modeled also my own anger in ways, and I would check in, is this okay? And she's like, that was scary for me. Mm-hmm. And then we built up a capacity to witness anger, to feel anger, and eventually to express anger. And she felt better. And the one of the ways I know she felt better without going into too many details was that her sexual function and desires came back online, which is why she originally came to see me. Hmm. Literally, her um, she was not able to produce enough lubricant on her own anymore oh, wow. until she resolved and it allowed for the movement of energy. She had more energy to literally come back to physiological functions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious if in your work you find that there is, it seems to me like anger is such a, you know, I think about healthy modeling of anger. I don't even really know what that would look like. Where would I even start with that one? Oh, I'll show uh, you. Okay. All right. <laughs> start with you. a pillow fight. No, no, sorry. Go on. <laughs> yeah. I do lots of, I used to do lots of pillow fights with people in my office back in the day. I love that. Well, and so do you not do that anymore? Is, have I don't, you found I don't see effective? people in person anymore. Okay. <laughs> Virtual patient. pillow fights then. Virtu- I've tried that. It's it's less fun, but we, we've, we've done it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, where were, where were you thinking? You started to say something when I brought up that. So it seemed like it lit something up within you that. Oh, how do you start to even model anger? Yeah, yeah. <sighs> First of all, you discern anger from uh rage for example yeah like anger doesn't is not about coming at you that's rage yeah anger 
it, when when anger becomes rage, it's directional. It's an attacking. It feels yeah. Where anger is rebuilding one's boundary, it's an expression that says no, or hey, yeah, or I need to navigate this friction. But it doesn't try to annihilate someone else. Yeah. Well, so then how do you display that in relationship to another? Is there a... Yeah. I mean, I when in that session, like I was sharing something because we both were navigating the realms of academia, <laughs> academia. So it was easy to like have a shared um, come thread. And it's a particular technique in therapy yeah. to do modeling like that. So mm-hmm. it's, 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 you know, it's not like I just disclosed everything. It's, it's specific. Um, where I said, oh, I had an experience. May I share an experience with you that made me mad? And I'd like to, to share with you what anger might also look like mm-hmm. or might look like differently than perhaps what your dad demonstrated. Mm-hmm. And I would share something. And I said, and I have a lot of energy and um, that's running through my arms. I'm going to move them just mm-hmm. like this. Not at you. I'm just going to move the anger in my body. And it has this like texture. It's kind of like the, you know, like the, a snow tire, like moving through snow. And it's, and it's have, it's like treading, it's treading and it's not finding ease yet through my body. And that's, and it's hot. Mm. And I'm, I'm talking about what's present in me and she's able. And so that creates a witnessing. And I remember the first time I showed anger in that way, she was like, that's not what anger looks like. I'm like, this is what anger is is within my experience, and it it took some time because there was this mindset that anger was actually rage and was throwing shit across a room mm-hmm. and was destructive, and I was like, well, often in rage like that, someone is not connected or in contact with the emotion itself. It's actually trying to like run away from it with a lot of energy. Mm. Do you think, I, I wonder, to me, when I hear you say this, it also feels a little scary to me to, to be able to tap into that. And it's always been like, sure. because I don't want to unleash it on the other person. And also in my childhood, it was very challenging to show any kind of emotion any kind of emotion, yeah. which is not an uncommon story. So I think I grew up learning how to be very stoic as an adult, mm. Uh, mm. as a self-protection mechanism. Yeah. And so where was I going with that? I had a question. <laughs> oh my gosh, I totally lost it. It's hard when we are kids and it's not modeled and it's not, there's not a permission. And it's like, I have a, I have a really good friend and I, and I'm, there was something I missed. I didn't, I didn't hear something. And so some, and, and, um, and, and so I didn't take the action because an act, an important action because of it. And she called me and she was like, I'm angry with you. I'm angry. And I'm angry because of this thing you did. And I was like, thank you so much for sharing that with me can I hold space with you around your anger? Is there anything you need? Like we just worked through it Mm -hmm. because it's not like anger was here to attack me. Anger like joy is an expression that is both informing oneself and and in sharing it informs another 
about where someone is and what they might need. And if we hold that framework, it, we recognize that why wouldn't we hold space for someone? Like, if I can hold space for someone who I contributed to their joy, I think I can hold space for someone who I contributed to their anger. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it seems to me like you have a very clear sense of boundaries in terms of this is the, the space between you. I've heard you that and before. <laughs> really? This isn't news to you? <laughs> um, I think this, I wonder what you think about narcissism in terms of like the importance of understanding how that plays into a dramatic flair or... Um, even the, even the, I don't know, the willingness to acknowledge that mm-hmm. you are being a narcissist right now. And I think mm-hmm. maybe when I say that word, we should probably define it because sure. narcissism yeah. has such a negative connotation. But at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, narcissism is one of those things that is, have become incredibly overgeneralized and yeah. more weaponized than understood. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you didn't meet my needs, therefore you're a narcissistic asshole. Or in the same way, it's like, oh, you didn't agree with my perspective on this. You must be gaslighting me. It's like, not to dismiss when those things are true. And if we dramatize, if we catastrophize someone else's behavior and label it to such a intensified way, then we're reacting to our label of it more than their actual behavior. Mm-hmm. And we're stuck in what we created by labeling it in that way. So that's an important thing to, to, to recognize is like, if everyone you're around is a narcissist, ooh, time to, time to check your vocab. It's like, if every, if every toe that you stub is a trauma, <laughs> yeah? Then it becomes then you're you're stuck in the narrative of the label to what you're labeling the situation as opposed to the experience, and how you label something has a physiological effect on your body so this is called neurolinguistics <laughs> you know like it's a whole it's a whole field of study um I didn't just make it up <laughs> what uh, what <laughs> So the the element about narcissism is and and how it relates to even to an addiction and drama is if you think about a narcissistic experience as someone who's stuck in a cage and the cage is a glass cage yeah so they can't hear they can't and by hear I mean absorb mm-hmm. they can't feel because that's too vulnerable and dangerous they can't be in contact with others because in their whole being, that vulnerability of being in contact with others is coupled with a sense of danger. Just like it is likely that to be in contact with themselves in their deep core experience is also coupled with a sense of danger. So they live in a prison. And you know, within that prison, they cannot be in relation to you. So if you are demanding for some type of contact, that is dangerous for them. 
they may not recognize it or register quite like that, but their physiological survival mechanisms are set up for that. And so what we often deem as like, oh, they're just narcissistic, it's actually they're imprisoned without the ability to be in contact and all they have in that cage or that prison is themselves. Mm. And they likely at some level can't even stand that. Mm. It's so sad. It's terribly sad. Yeah. And and that is not unsimilar to an addiction to drama where except that they it's different mechanisms or different strategies. But there's an entrapment in oneself when you're deeply wounded. Yeah, when there's a deep pain and impact, you don't and you can't be here. You're flooded. You're it's too much. Where do you go? You kind of d- dissociate. Yeah. Or even in a wound, what happens? You fall on your bike and you get like a, a boo-boo, but you get this whole inflammatory response, right? It gets swollen. Mm-hmm. Well, that swelling is there to protect the injury, but it also locks the whole area in. Ideally, over time, we reduce the inflammation so that the blood flow can move through, so there's less, less protection is needed. Yeah. But in our whole bodies with trauma, we don't necessarily, we never got the time space permission to register the event is over or have processed it so that inflammation stays. And that is the prison that I'm talking about. Mm. That is part of the prison in which we are entrapped in ourselves and dissociated at the same time, disconnected from ourselves. Mm-hmm. So we're disconnected from ourselves, and we're disconnected from other people. And it's like, and that numbness gives us a sense that we are not here on this earth. I used to refer to myself, and I talk about this in the book, as a walking ghost. Mm-hmm. We know numbness often or more, you know, more generally as like sadness or depression or lack of purpose and meaning. But that numbness also has a physiological truth to it. And to rise above the threshold of that numbness by creating sensation, by putting ourselves in dramatic situations or crises after crises after crises helps us rise above the threshold of that numbness and feel alive, feel something that reinforces that we belong on this planet that we have some type of meaning that we could possibly connect to other people and if we're in a group drama yeah everyone's in our tornado and they're feeling it and we're feeling it oh my gosh suddenly i feel like i belong Mm -hmm. i feel in sync with others in a constant uh sense of being out of sync with myself the world and everyone else in it so why wouldn't we do that stuff? If we feel so shitty and so numb and out of sync, why wouldn't we pull in all of these strategies as even if they have social consequences to give some sense of feeling, some sense of belonging? Yeah, it makes total sense. I think yeah. we, you know, I know I do that um, unconsciously. And then like I was yeah. saying before, retrospectively, I'll catch yeah. myself and Sometimes it does take someone else pointing it out and being yeah. like, oh, yeah, I actually did do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm wondering what you think it takes to break that cycle 
Is it a matter of, and I'm sure it's different and nuanced. Of course, this is a layered question and probably impossible to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyways. <laughs> Do we have to hit rock bottom? I did. Um, I I would not wish that and wish that for everyone. Um, sometimes we have to keep, I mean, rock bottom from my own experience was running out of survival strategies. <laughs> Every time I, you know, found I was utilizing a strategy, I would exhaust it by the circumstances. And then another circumstance was there and another strategy and I would exhaust that. And by the end, I had literally collapsed with no more strategies, but the rawness of who I was and the pain to which um, I had been avoiding for so long. So in some ways, I say, like, I wish for everyone to experience rock bottom, but maybe with a lot of resources and support. Mm. And um, at the same time, I would wish that we didn't have to reach to that absolute exhaustion, absolute devastation of life to change. And, you know, a big part of it is starting to recognize where do we rev ourselves up? Where are we contributing to the lack of peace or stillness in our own life and not necessarily consciously? So when we unshame it, when we just go, what if it's just a, ref what if it's just a yeah. reflex in me? Yeah. Can I start to identify the reflex as opposed to the story about the reflex? And that's going to help. And then we, you know, we start to create more wedges in between stimulus and response. Yeah. And we start to go, oh, I'm revving myself up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop that before I hit that volcanic explosion, that unintegrated catharsis I know so well. And I'm going to resource myself back to the present moment, back to my body. Yeah, I'm going to see if, I, if there is something here for me to process and be with. And when we can start to interrupt it, then we can start to make enough space to be with the core material that we probably have not processed, to come back into contact with ourselves. The interruption part is so interesting to me. And I've done mm -hmm. work with therapists on this in terms mm -hmm. of uh, my, my partner and I, mm -hmm. um, like that, when you talk about the revving up, when we're starting to get into a fight. So our therapist would have us have like a low stakes conversation mm -hmm. where we would allow ourselves to feel that kind of hook or th that trigger mm -hmm. um, and then practice taking a break before we mm. got revved up. Um, it's <laughs> in theory, it's like, oh yeah, I can do that. And then when you go to practice it, it's very challenging, I find. Oh, so yeah. I'm, I'm wondering what you found works in terms of uh, catching yourself or noticing yeah. in the middle or calming it down when it's starting to rev. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the other things you're even bringing up too is starting to tolerate quote unquote boredom. Hmm. And so often we think, you know, we use the term boredom inst and instead of like peace. Nothing, like nothing exciting and exaggerated and intensified. It's like, you know, <clears throat> can I tolerate sitting for an extra minute in meditation as opposed to jumping onto scrolling and trolling 
the internet that I know will create some type of sickness or watching the news. Can I, can I turn off the news one minute earlier tonight? Can I tolerate that much less stimulus? Mm -hmm. And when I can build the tolerance for less stimulus, then I can also start to interrupt my own patterns and tolerate that much less stimulus in what I'm doing. That's stress, essentially. Mm -hmm. So, one of the things is to notice how you rev. There are like five different main approaches to revving. Do I internally rev? Do I generate stories? Do I create impossible scenarios? You know, what is my revving style? Uh -huh. And then to go, okay, what is the body sensation that comes along with that revving style? Okay, so I saw you raise your hand when it said make, make external stories and pull yeah. people into those stories. Yeah. It's like I have a little bit of clay and then I'm taking everyone else's clay and then shoving it into mine and then mm -hmm. building something bigger than what actually was there. That's, yeah. that's the revving style. Mm -hmm. um, and so I noticed that. It's like, ooh, okay. So what is it like when I feel myself reaching for narrative, reaching for story or facts yeah or trying to prove someone wrong it, like what's the body sensation that comes with that so i'm starting to recognize the behavior and the body sensation i'm starting to add to my list of wit things i witness so that i have a better chance of recognizing it i think yeah. for me it's like heart racing yeah use that right use that somatic cue of going Oh, when my heart's racing, I know I'm I'm in the revving pattern. Yeah. So let that be the check-in point. It's like every time I notice my heart racing, I hit the pause button to whatever degree I can. Hit the pause button. I have a safety word. Yeah, it's like um, jammies. <laughs> like literally, you could do that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and then it's like, wait, what? jammies? It's interruptive. Mm -hmm. That's the whole point. Um, I like weird safety words because it, the weirder they are, the more I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> and it's disruptive. Yeah. Jammy jammies. Um, I'm like, oh, yeah, jammy jammies. I must be creating a story. So I'm pausing and I'm going, ooh, I know that I rev as a means of avoidance. We all do. Yeah. What am I really hungry for? What is the need? that I really have and what is the feeling that's present that maybe I'm out of contact with? What is under the hood? Check under the hood. Yeah. And as we de-escalate it, we start to myelinate that new pathway of alternative choice besides revving. And that over time, and I mean it over time, it will not happen right away. Yeah. And when you're we saying have to keep reinforcing it. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, definitely. Building that new neural pathway definitely takes repetition in time. Yeah. I'm thinking about I wonder if you have specific uh go-tos where you're like, okay, can I tolerate this level of boredom? Can I interrupt at this mm -hmm. level? Okay, I've said jammies. Now what do I go do? Nothing. Yeah. Not necessarily. Um it's like I, I find when you're doing the check-in, like, oh, I'm feeling sad. Okay, well, what do I need when I'm feeling sad? I need a hug. Mm. Or I notice my impulse to go, like, make up a story and post it on Instagram to get likes. 
okay, is that really going to get me seen and witnessed on the core level? And that's the, that's the questions we start to ask ourselves. We start to be in conversation with ourselves. And that's where the change starts to happen. And then I notice after that, and, and you actually named it, it's like, how long can I stay in the space mm-hmm. without a spike, without a hit of that stress? Yeah. And I keep having, like, so I did this practice in my late 20s. I raised my hand whenever I was revving had a thought of that activated revving, started doing a behavior that activated And I would raise my hand hundreds of times a day. Literally. I'd be in a yoga class and I just raised my hand and they're like, yeah, do you have a question? I was like, nope, talking to myself. Have a good day. And I didn't care. I was in my own process. And it was like, this was my way of checking. Like, hey, I'm doing it. Hey, I'm doing it. And over time, I would notice, because I needed to notice, that I was doing it less. Mm. Because that even reinforced all the effort I was doing to get out of the rev. So I would, get, I would find myself in the revving and I'd go, step back. Step back from the drama. Step back from the narrative. Step away. You don't actually need this. This is not going to bring you what you actually desire in your core. This just brings you further away from you, further away from other people. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, again, it's that reinforcing. So I don't know if that's the tool. There, there are a bunch of tools in chapter three. Yeah. Um, there's a, a list of what um, I, I, we came up with with clients. Um, clients and I came up with for their tools, like having other people, having a safe word with other people. So you might have your partner say, pajamas every time they witness or perceive you uh, revving yourself up. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of different strategies we could pull in. Yeah. No, I love that. Thank you so much. I was curious. I, I want to be mindful of your time. I, I want to ask you one more question around how you got into this work. I'm always interested in, you know, you're a psychologist, a former drag queen. Yes, it is the first thing I said about you as I introduced <laughs> you. <laughs> How did you go from drag queen to psychology? Um, well, I had a lot of other degrees in between. Then. <laughs> I, uh, I was studying dance therapy. Um, I'm an osteopath. Um, I'm a DO. Um, so I was always interested in a lot of different degrees because basically... I had this curiosity as a child of why I didn't feel human, why I didn't feel whole. I felt like um, often when I would say to my parents, I feel like a walking ghost, they would say, like, what does that mean? And I would say, I don't feel dimensional. I feel like flat and like too, like not full. And um, it it started this, this, curiosity this desire to feel like a full person um and i didn't know where to go i you know like there's no there was no book i'm like hey how to be a full person how not to feel like a flat two-dimensional cartoon character uh so i went and studied like what it is to be human from all these different directions i studied medicine you know i studied psychology i studied public health i studied dance i studied acting i studied anthropology 
um, you know, like my it was a quest to go where where do you arrive? What knowledge can you uh, and wisdom can you achieve to feel more human? And the most substantial pieces was actually more something called somatics and body mind centering and things that brought me back home to myself and allowed me to feel like feel a containment. You you mentioned like I have good boundaries. I had no boundaries, but I it's something I built. And that when I say boundaries, it's not like I just say yes and no. My boundaries give me a clarity of where I begin and where I meet the world. And then it in that three-dimensional way, I then can fill myself and and um be more at home within that. Like I had an addiction because I needed to fill a void where I should have been. But I couldn't have been there as a kid because I was overwhelmed. I the the traumatic experiences I had took up the space and pushed me up. Or mm-hmm. or I vacated, I divorced from myself as a means of survival. However we want to look at it. Yeah. And I filled that void with something so powerful, just called stress. Yeah. I I filled it because not only did it give me sensation of feeling alive over that numbness, but also the thing about stress is it's one of it is the strongest natural pain reliever besides bonding. Yeah. Bonding and stress are our two natural pain relievers. They create the hormonic, uh, uh, the the cascade of hormones that create uh, uh, pain relief in the body. Huh. And when feeling connected to other people feels dangerous, as it does for more than half the population, mm-hmm. with insecure attachment styles, you know, what are they going to turn to for some pain relief? What we know, right? What we know. Yeah. And we and and stress, drama, however we want to say it, free. We can create it, we can manifest it, we can find it wherever we go. I can be in the middle of the desert and create a story about my ex. Mm-hmm. I can be mean to myself in the middle of the Arctic. Yeah. It is free, it is powerful, and it is available. For us to seek, create, manifest wherever we are. Gosh, I never really thought about stress like that as a pain reliever, but it's yeah. it's really interesting to to hear you say that. Yeah, I, I mean it's brilliant, right? We're yeah. we're in a potential threat response, mm-hmm. and so part of the threat response is already to release uh, a certain amount of hormones that that generate preemptively and postemptively pain relief yeah that makes so much sense (laughs) we're fucking smart as shit we just have cashed in on that uh, maybe a little too much at times (laughs) yeah a little bit over let's balance that out a little bit i'm curious if you want to leave the audience with any key takeaway from the book or from the Mm. conversation or both i think a key takeaway i would say of the book is that the book is meant for us if we also have people in our life who are addicted to drama which is everyone your mother-in-law your brother your cousin your best friend twice removed you know we all know someone addicted to drama 
And so whether this book is about how you protect yourself and how you preserve your energy, because their drama is contagious. I don't just mean that in some flippant way. I literally mean physiologically, drama is contagious. So they're, when they're in the throes of their stress, that leaks out into you. We are designed for it. Mm-hmm. And if you notice for yourself, like, hey, I want more peace in my life. We all do. Yeah. If we say we hate drama, but why, why do I keep finding myself in it? Or if we say, like, there's always something. Drama just finds me. Yeah. Bad relationships just find me. Maybe get curious because this book might just be unveiling a shadow for you. (laughs) Yeah. Gently and lovingly. (laughs) Very gently and lovingly. (laughs) Thank you for writing this and sharing it with us, Dr. Scott. I love your website, uh, drscottlyons.com, which has the fun quiz that Dr. Lyons referred to. Um, I highly recommend if you want to make it interactive, Mm -hmm. do it with a friend. Do it with a friend. (laughs) laugh at it yeah and then you can highlight things about each other that you know you you gently just it's definitely a conversation starter that you've been waiting to start for a long time (laughs) it was for me it worked (laughs) um and check out dr lyon's podcast the gently used human wonderful thank Um, you so much is there anything you want to add any other you can find me on as social too Instagram, Dr. Scott Lyons, and the TikTok, um, and Dr. Scott Lyons, too, for little video clips. And um, yeah, or at the Embody Lab uh, is another place to find me where I do all my teaching of somatics and trauma therapy and somatic stress release and all that fun stuff. Yeah, cool. Thank you so much. Really appreciate (laughs) it. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Radically Loved Podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook at Radically Loved Rosie, on Instagram at Rosie Acosta, and Twitter at Rosie Acosta. By the way, this is original music by DJ Taz Rashid. You can follow DJ Taz on Spotify and check out the best music for yoga and meditation. This has been a Mod Pod Studio production. Check them out at www.modpodstudio.com.